This week's episode contains binaural recordings. Listen with headphones if you can. Sounds curious. Welcome back to the Sounds Curious podcast, the podcast for you, the adventurous listener. Now, this week's opening is a track by Swans of Avon from back in the 1990s, a track called When Heaven Falls. And in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say that this week's episode is particularly exciting for me. We have been talking about sound and the uncanny and gothic music, but we've kind of skirted around various gothic subcultures. Now, when I listened to this track by Swans of Avon, I was immediately brought back to a musical place and time that I enjoyed very much. I was definitely goth influenced in my younger days and have retained some of that uh, and retained that style uh, long past the phase of teenage angst that most people think it is mostly from a love of the music so yes early on this music found its way into my aesthetic and has held fast ever since and shows up in all sorts of ways from my interest in theorizing sound as uncanny to my compositional interest in the sounds of synthesizers and obviously generated electronic music. So today we're going to talk about a topic that I didn't know about before this conversation with a young scholar, again from Kingston University, also doing a PhD. You might remember back to the interview with George Reed on Chiptune, uh, Claire 
Rebecca Bannister is also a PhD student at Kingston. Obviously, Kingston has a really exciting program with lots of folks doing really interesting research. This is also the last of the interviews we did live at the International Conference on the Fantastic in the Arts in Orlando. Now, obviously, we suspended regular programming last week uh, to talk about the shootings in Orlando. And that might have felt a bit out of left field. Hopefully, um, the episode redeemed itself. And I want to reach out and thank everyone who reached out after hearing that episode particularly after hearing about Marsha P. Johnson, and I'm incredibly honored to have sparked some interest in her incredible life and her incredible work. In addition, this week, we were pretty surprised and a bit taken aback by the Brexit vote in the UK to leave the European Union. Um, it seems like current events are taking a remarkably personal tone lately, uh, given how many of the guests and artists we feature here on Sounds Curious are international, and that includes many from the UK, and, uh... It's made us all the more certain that even for a podcast specializing in sound, we don't operate in a vacuum. We operate in the context of a global political, economic, social, and cultural landscape that we have decided to embrace. But it also reminded us here at the podcast that we are, in addition to wanting to present you with great interviews, like the one that's coming up today about goth psychedelia with Claire Rebecca Bannister, we're also really interested in bringing you news and interesting developments all over the world in the area of sound. So this is our first news segment here on Sounds Curious, something that we want to make a regular part of our episodes. We want to cover some of the interesting topics that have arisen in the world of sound installation, sound art, audio, improvisation, contemporary classical music, and particularly, I think, um, things that are a bit off the beaten path. So, Sounds Curious, we are out there looking for interesting content. And this week, we came across a bunch of it. So, it seems like the perfect moment to start our new segment. The first article that I wanted to bring to your attention was published on June 24th in the Denver Post with the title, A Rusting Water Tank in the Colorado Desert Emerges as One of the Sonic Wonders of the World. We'll link to this article over the show notes so you can see uh, photos and read some more about it. 
But essentially, this article tells the story of Bruce Odland, uh, describing him as a long-haired oral artist in the 1970s, a wild-eyed hippie who traversed the country recording unique sounds in his eclectic albums. He was rambling through Northwest Colorado in 1976, gathering sounds for a roaming arts festival when a pair of roughnecks picked him up in their truck. Those kinds of stories don't tend to end well, but anyway. The article goes on to say, he said he was seeking sound. They brought him to a 60-foot tall water tank on a muddy hill above Rangeley. They showed him a small portal at the base of a steel tank. Slide in there and turn up your recording equipment to 11, they said. It was pitch black inside. I can't believe it, but I did it. So that's Odlin's account of his discovery of this water tank and its amazing acoustic properties. And the article goes on to describe how they are currently uh, trying to improve the tank, uh, retrofit it, and make it appropriate for artist residencies, recordings, and concerts. So in this world, amazing sound can be found all over the place. And if you found a water tank in Colorado that gave you an amazing acoustic experience, don't be surprised if there are people out there who will change their whole lives around to keep experiencing that. So go check out the Denver Post for June 24th, 2016, and check out that article. It's really interesting. Also up in the news this recently in my news feed was an article uh, in Gizmodo. And again, I'll link to this article in the show notes. This article was entitled, Artificial Sound Effects Have Now Entered the Uncanny Valley. Well, I have just mentioned the Uncanny Valley in recent episodes on the uncanny. So given that this is using that particular term to describe a technological innovation, I thought I had to bring it up in the show. This is from June 13th issue of Gizmodo. And it is basically describing recent research discoveries from MIT that essentially can look at a video of action. You know, in this particular case, it's a drumstick that someone has in their hand and they're beating plants and the ground and some asphalt. And essentially what these researchers have done is developed an algorithm that can look at the physical interactions between the drumstick and the bushes, the drumstick and the ground. It can interpret the actions of that drumstick and then predict a soundtrack for those actions that can actually fool people into thinking that it is the actual soundtrack. This is a very interesting development because being able to precisely predict the acoustical qualities of a sound and then to go on and simulate it in such an extremely realistic way is very much a a milestone in our understanding of acoustics and certainly in our understanding of representing sounds of the natural world 
in the digital realm. So I highly recommend this article by George Dvorsky over at Gizmodo on artificial sound effects entering the uncanny valley. For those of you who are interested in sound effects, there are some wonderful articles out there about Foley. And for those of you who don't know the term Foley, Foley is all of the recordings that are made and used as the sound effects in a film. Very rarely are the sounds that you hear generated on camera the sounds that you actually hear as part of a soundtrack. There are many, many, many artists who create that soundtrack for you. So if you're interested, go check out Gizmodo. It's a great article, short read, and some really great acoustic examples. Uh, If you're interested in both the electronic generation of sound, as well as the physics of sound in the natural world, these are really interesting things. And finally, from our global files, I came across a very interesting article on a website called Cyclic Defrost cyclicdefrost.com. This particular article by Zacharias Zumer, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is actually a year old, but it just showed up in my news feed uh, when I put in some new parameters. I was interested in electronic instruments in non-Western countries, particularly building um, electronic and uh, digital instruments in non-Western countries. And this one popped up about the synth building culture in Indonesia. And it's actually an interview um, with a creator of these wonderful new synthesizers. I'll just read you the introductory paragraph. Despite limited materials or professional instruction, Indonesia has an active and highly creative DIY synth building community. Apart from being given a solder-your-own light sensor noise machine as a souvenir as at an experimental gig in Surabaya last year, I first discovered this community of DIY synth creators through the documentation efforts of Lintang Raditya, I, again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, on his blog, Synesthesia ID. Again, we will link to all of these in the show notes. Lintang Raditya has been making and documenting synths and synth building culture in Indonesia for several years and his blog is an amazing collection of the many extraordinary and bizarre synth creations he has found throughout Indonesia. He also makes and sells his own creations under the same name under the name I will link to that one. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. Zachariah Schumer sat down with Lintang and to talk about his work and his passion. So we are going to link to the blog. We're going to link to the um, to the interview over here at Cyclic Defrost. We're going to keep you updated on this as we do more research. But the idea of cultures of instrument building, particularly digital instrument building around the world, are of great interest to this show. So we want to bring them to your attention. So that's our news segment for today, an article on algorithms and sound effects, an article on using a rusted out water tank in the wilds of Colorado, and this amazing synth building culture and artistic 
exploration of DIY technology in Indonesia. All three of them open us up to amazing worlds, and we hope you will explore them a little further in the show notes. So anyway, on to this week's interview. It has certainly been one that we have been looking forward to for a while now. This interview intersects nicely with a bunch of conversations we've already had on the podcast about the idea of a critical distance between researchers and the subcultures or musical practices that they study. In this case, if you look like a goth and you study gothic music, you may be accused of not having an appropriate level of critical distance to your subject matter. But this is not a, a philosophy that we really hold to here at the podcast. Critical distances are, well, relative, to say the very least, and complicated. So this interview on the Gothic and psychedelia and this history that was heretofore unknown to me, but since has really, uh, I very much enjoyed doing the research for the show and going back and listening to a lot of these examples of what is classified as Gothic psychedelic rock. Now, when I say psychedelic Gothic rock, I'm referring to bands in the 80s and the 90s, like Into the Abyss, although there were a number of bands with that name, but there is one in the 1990s that was a very well-known underground psychedelic rock band. Bands like Swans of Avon at the opening, and Red Temple Spirits formed in the late 1980s in Los Angeles. All of these bands fused influences of post-punk, tribal, and the kind of repetitiveness of psychedelia that found its way into the niche between these two musical subcultures. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation with Claire Rebecca Bannister about her talk at the International Conference for the Fantastic in the Arts and her research, her own musical compositions and her own musical life and this fascinating intersection of musical subcultures that she is making one of the centers of her research for her doctoral degree at Kingston University. So let's get to it. Okay, so my name is Clara Becker, or Wondred. <laughs> <laughs> and she has one dreadlock, for um, so I'm a musician. Um, I've been a musician my whole life, um, a, a composer, a sound designer mostly, but I, I do a bit of performance, uh, clarinet, which is <laughs> not exactly goth, I know, but... Oh, clarinet, anything can be goth, honey. I think the clarinet is very goth. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I'm at Kingston University London, um, and I'm doing a PhD in music. So just music? Yeah. Excellent. Plain, ready-salted music. (laughs) (laughs) The assortment pack. (laughs) Little musicology, little theory, little composition, little electronics, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I guess I guess if you want to narrow it down, I'm looking at uh, music analysis um, and music theory, um, and then sort of drawing on the methodologies from popular music analysis. But I mean, I'm not doing like a practice based degree or anything like that, so I'm not I'm not going to be submitting any of my uh, you know compositions or or, or dance music or, or sound design pieces or anything like that. Um, but I can't separate that from how it makes me think. Mm. So it, it's, it's definitely integral to it sort of thing. Once a composer, always a composer, and it, com- it, it absolutely in- influences and infects everything that we do with music. We, we can't stop thinking that way. So, no. yeah, I get it. So, yeah. <laughs> um, how does your identity as both a composer and a goth interact in both your scholarship, in your musical composition, how do those two identities, those overlapping identities, interact in your music? Yeah, that's quite tricky, I guess, because, like, in academia, there's, um, I guess we privilege knowledge that has sort of a critical distance. Yes. Um, whereas I feel that I'm, I'm speaking about a subject that resonates with me. Yes. And I'm coming at it from experience and... I think experiential knowledge is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess one of the ways I'm, I want to adhere to sort of... I don't like the word ethnographic research, or I, I don't think it's quite right, but um, is, is, is because I feel there's something really valuable there to offer, and we shouldn't be... Um, we shouldn't be prejudiced against certain types of knowledge, and we shouldn't... Uh, for example, try to make uh, as artists we shouldn't try to make our methodologies sound more scientific to gain credibility. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> You're welcome. No, absolutely, and I think that only in only in certain forms of academic discourse is actual experience in you know as a personal as a as a participant informant if we're going to borrow that term from ethnomusicology, you know only in certain forms of academia is admitting to being something. It makes you lose credibility rather than gain such. Mm. I mean, if you're an African-American in African-American studies, somehow you have a legitimate right to that. But if you're a goth who wants to do gothic music studies, somehow it seems like, oh, well, you're just, you know, you're just taking the easy way out. <laughs> well, people, people will automatically regard you with suspicion anyway. So. Exactly. <laughs> of course. Well, I'm sure our African-American brothers and sisters in academia will tell us that they're often regarded with suspicion as well. But nonetheless... Yeah, I, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm trying to... to to, to be defiant against that, you know, because if you're not going to stand up for what you believe in, who the fuck is? Absolutely. Absolutely. Excuse my French. No, no. French is all welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is labeled explicit. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> we can swear all we want. Well, one of the things now, uh, uh, you know, I've been doing several interviews and for those listening at home, this is another one of the interviews that I'm doing at the International Conference for the Fantastic on the Fantastic in the Arts, not for the Fantastic in the Arts, but for those of us who are here every year and get nourished by this, we think it's for us. <laughs> so I often mistake that. But 
One of the things that I found really, um, you know, I immediately knew after I heard your paper that I wanted to talk to you for the podcast, because as someone who has a long history with both, uh, as both a, a fan and an unabashedly so, I will, I would admit absolutely that my love of this music is personal and I study it because I love it and... And anybody who tells me that I shouldn't study music that I love can go do something else. Um, so the notion, however, that's much more recently um, sort of hit me was, and again, several years earlier, I did a, um, a paper exploring desert goth and sort of um, these electronic dance music sort of, you know, pop-up raves. I guess we would call them raves in the early 90s, but by the mid-2000s, you know, we call them desert parties, in which the combination of psychedelia and gothic was really... Um, it was really striking. Mm. And your paper focused in on that, not only on the relationship between these kind of subcultures and some of the things about that. I'm going to let you go into that in a second... But also, um, the deep down into the structures of the music and mm. how elements of the music relate from one to the other. Mm. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write that paper and what motivated you to write that paper and you know what kinds of insights were you trying to uncover in that relationship? Because I think there's a lot that's hidden in that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess one of the things I want to do is bring some of the issues to the surface because a lot a lot of them are political politically charged and I think point towards some quite deep underlying social problems that everyone is quite happy just to to swallow but I'm not <laughs> good so I guess at a very at, at, at the most basic level what I'd like to do is open dialogue mm. and I want to move psychedelia out from an area that's that that, that is regarded with suspicion um or, or, or taboo or something like that and certainly illegitimacy you know there's a there's a concept a good word for that yeah yeah i mean there's a concept that i've come across called toxic psychosis which is uh if you admit to somebody that you've experienced a psychedelic drug then immediately from that point onwards, everyone can completely disregard what you say because you're obviously fucked off your head. Mm -hmm. Like me right now, I must be absolutely high off my brain. So, mm -hmm. you know, listeners at home, please disregard <laughs> everything I'm saying clearly. <laughs> if we're talking about psychedelic, yeah, it's, you know, combining two more suspicious, I mean, two subcultures that generate more suspicion in society, I don't think we could do. I think the psychedelic <laughs> subculture and the gothic subculture both undergo equal amounts of... of objectification and mm -hmm. dismissal mm. and so the fact that you kind of you know created this node you know you're sort of showing how each one resonates the other mm. I think is really interesting now you say that you want to uncover these things and you want to um you know that you see these things as fundamentally political and that you want to rebel so who are we rebelling against uh well <laughs> in Britain at the moment we are rebelling against a government who is about to although I heard I heard yesterday that it's 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 been postponed. I think till about October. That's not confirmed. They were going to uh, in April, so like in about a month's time, going to pass something called the Psychoactive Substances Act, um, in which even though <laughs> they're so incompetent they can't even define what a psychoactive substance is, they're going to to ban the uh, the, the, the distribution and 
um, and production of all of these these substances. I mean, the the idea is to suppress novel psychoactive sub- substances before they even come out, which I think is a really really dangerous thing to do because if that that's just such an example of cutting off your nose to spite your face. Very much. I so. mean, I think psychedelic drugs have so many uh, like so much potential, uh, so many implications in in all different areas of society, um, not just social, but medical. And, and I think, I think to, to suppress the research and knowledge around these areas because some subcultural kids might have fun at the same time mm. is just absolutely outlandish. And the fact that they are exempting nicotine and alcohol... Right, the ones that you're allowed to do. yeah. Exactly, I mean... And caffeine. And caffeine, yeah. So so we have to look at the effects of those drugs and say, okay, well, what resonances do these drugs carry in, in our society? What, what, like, what benefit does the government have in, in allowing us to smoke uh, uh, substances that, that we know are harmful to our health and, and, and to drink chemicals that, 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 that kill brain cells and, and all this kind of stuff, but not... Not, not, not this other class that have, you know, been found to help people with social anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder mm. and, and all kinds of things. I mean, I think you need to open that dialogue because there's something really inherently wrong about that. And the fact that people think I'm the crazy one <laughs> for thinking that, like... No, I think, Grant, you, I think you would have, you know... Graham Hancock would agree with you, and, and the war on consciousness right now, I mean, certainly in Graham Hancock's work, the war on consciousness, you know, the fact that we have this societal notion that we're only allowed substances that keep us in a business, mm-hmm. daily, you know, business functioning conscious, those are the ones that we're allowed, and then mm-hmm. occasionally you can drink on the weekends, but, you know, it is a fundamental right for us to choose how we explore our individual consciousness. Mm. If we think about it, inside of each of us is a cosmology to be discovered. And one of the ways that traditional peoples have done this has been through substances. And so when people like Graham Hancock say there is a war on consciousness, it is simply because there is a war on all but the functional business capitalist consciousness that is essential for commerce and trade. Mm -hmm. And yet the people's fundamental right to explore their own identities and the, the limits of their own consciousness mm. are completely suppressed. And that, that's a really interesting point as well. And I think, I mean, I, I've always thought that, you know, <laughs> if you can't explore outer space, then at least you can explore inner space, right? So there's something that's almost like democratizing about that. I mean, I personally don't like the word right uh, because, well, that, that's a completely other issue. But... Um, oh, you can explain it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> okay, I guess. I guess. Uh, I guess I see it maybe as like as a symptom of an excess of culture. Hmm. Interesting. Like, um, like we're, we're we're so, and by we I mean human beings are so arrogant and at the top of the food chain that we assume that we have rights. And I think, I mean, I never used to have a problem with this issue until people started talking about how, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fundamental human right for people to have a high-speed internet connection. I mean, I'm, fuck off. Seriously, <laughs> seriously, fuck off. <laughs> 
In America, I would just like the fundamental right not to get shot while I'm walking down the street. That I would settle for that at this point. Yeah. Well, now, so we've, we're, you know, we're talking about consciousness, and obviously, in terms of psychedelia, you know, there's a there's an instant uh, parallel between you know it's because in psychedelic culture, consciousness is such a you know a foregrounded mm-hmm. phenomenon. But what about the goth culture? I mean, how do you see the exploration of sort of inner space and consciousness? Do you see a parallel in goth? music and goth musical culture and goth subculture as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I find goth music one of the most intensely psychedelic types of music that I've ever come across. And, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do this research project was because I so rarely find it described as such. And, I mean, at first I thought, (laughs) hey, maybe I'm tripping, maybe there's something wrong (laughs) with the way I'm thinking. Is it just me? So I, you know, you look at the literature on, on it, like within music theory of how we understand psychedelia, and I think that's where I, where I started to think, okay, there's so much potential here um, to, to sort of fuse perhaps like new areas of research where we can, we, we, we can tie together strands of knowledge about uh, psychedelia. And I mean, that in itself is such a, an enormous and multidisciplinary subject because you can yes. come at it from anthropology, from neuropharmacology, from psychology, you know, so, so, so many different angles and, and music. And I don't think anybody would ever deny that there is a relationship between music and drug subcultures. Um, but it's, it's also one of those, those things that like n- nobody really likes to talk about. Right. Um, and it, it's just, it just got me thinking, um, the way we, we currently conceptualise how sort of psychedelia manifests in music, I think is quite limited in the sense that a lot of our thinking is based around the 1960s ca- counterculture. Right. Grateful it's- Dead and Fish. <laughs> we're done. Once we, once we do those, we're done. Exactly. Yeah, end of the lesson. Yeah, and it's like, it's, it's very centred around LSD as well. I mean, there are so many, so, 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 so many different psychedelic chemicals. And there are so many different ways that psychedelia can manifest within music. So I think there's and, and within music itself. I mean, I think about you know one of the one of the other things that's lurking behind this conversation is how quickly and um, absolutely repetitive music is dismissed by <laughs> the academic music culture as being you know as having nothing to offer, and the fact that the role and function of repetition in music is so quickly dismissed in musicology as being you know a just is something about the body, you know, well, it's just people want to dance, it's just about moving. Mm. And yet... Wait, even that, sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> it be really rude and interrupt. But You're I mean, supposed to interrupt. You're but like, <laughs> even that is a prejudice against knowledge. Exactly. Because it's like, oh, uh, you know, if you're saying, oh, you know, it's just for people to dance to, all right, so what is the, what's the problem with dancing? Mm-hmm. Why is it less legitimate or less worthy of our attention than you know i guess i guess the alternative is like music for the mind music to listen to the concert hall where yeah. we quiet the body we take away all visual stimulus and we're supposed to simply consume the music hmm. and so that is somehow seen as and i've been fighting that battle for a very long time that is somehow <laughs> seen as the pinnacle of western music as well as let's face it the discrete artistic work by the single creative genius. Mm, mm-hmm. And so when we begin to get into these other worlds where we're talking about psychedelia, where we're talking about God, we're not talking about discrete 
individual creations. We're more often talking about a collective experience. We're more often talking about an interactional relationship that is absolutely essential to the experience. Mm. And we have not even the vocabulary within music to explain that. No. So I think your research is really getting to the heart of that as well. Do you see not just, I mean, when I was listening to your talk yesterday, yeah, whatever, whenever that was. <laughs> this is why I love, <laughs> I've lost track of time. This is why well. I love being able to edit, to cut that out. Um, <laughs> no, when I was listening to your talk, I was thinking about the role and function of dance and repetition in bringing about psychedelic states. Mm. And so, you know, in essence, because it's always, it's always dismissed as drugs, and yet the music itself has the ability often to bring us to those places. Well, that's the thing, right? Because... Um, I mean, although I, I, I am certainly not prejudiced against uh, the sort of the you know the, the knowledge and the insights that psychedelic drugs have to offer us. I'm also not um, suggesting that everyone should go and take heaps of psychedelic drugs and it's completely safe. And you know, <laughs> you know, there are there Don't are. Don't try this at home. Really. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I think. You know, it's a really dangerous thing not to acknowledge and recognise that putting a chemical inside your body carries risks. And but I mean, our medical culture at the moment is, is our the, the the way we the way we 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 treat problems so often is oh you know take a couple of pills and um, yeah, depressed here's some medication. Well, absolutely, you know, like. God help you if you if you want to actually try and try and get to the boss, bottom of your issues or whatever. Just you know suppress them quietly and back onto work, whatnot. Okay. <laughs> and, and go back to you, and get back to your filing. Yeah, yeah. Go back to your desk and become a productive, useful member of society again. Um, so, if there are if there are ways that we can understand the effects of these of these chemicals in the mind, and then see whether there are any analogies between. Uh, similar effects caused by music. Um, I mean, I would be—I'd be interested to be proved wrong, but I, I would—I would hypothesize that there are inherently less side effects from listening to music. Negative side effects. I'm talking about now because you know every chemical that you put in your body is going to have a side effect. Absolutely. Um, so every every medicine, you know, no, no matter how beneficial, there, there is there is also a risk. And I, I can't help but wonder whether, whether if we understood how music works better, whether there would be any potential to minimise that risk. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's already been proven that like rhythmic stimuli can speed up brainwaves of, of patients suffering from you know, ADHD and things like this in a similar way to stimulant medications. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to suppose that they don't have... The, the, the same risk as stimulant medications do. Right, right. So. No, and actually the, I mean, and I wish I could remember the study that just came out because I was just listening to it last night um, where they have several new apps that have come out for your smartphone that monitor your activity, they monitor what you're doing, they monitor your heart rate and and they suggest music for you <laughs> to help you achieve what it is. So if you're upset and you want to calm down, they will go into your libraries and figure out what you have used in the past in the same physiological conditions, and they will start playing things so that you can bring yourself down if you're too up, you can bring yourself up if you're too down. And so in essence, we've already proven in neuroscience that music can be as effective as these things. Mm. What's interesting is the status of both in our culture. 
Oh, it's, it's, it's so interesting you're saying that because I was, I was having a fascinating conversation yesterday with a gentleman who was talking, me, um, talking to me about his, his working environment and he was, he was talking about this drive at the moment within his working culture whereby employees are encouraged to find music that makes them more productive. Yes. Right? So it's, it's, it goes back to this again. You know, you, 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 can, you, can, you can take nicotine if it's going to make you more productive, or you can take alcohol if it's going to suppress the way you you're, <laughs> you're, you're rage about these working conditions that you have to endure every day. But God help you if you want to explore your consciousness kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's the same with music. You know, we, we, we accept that, okay... Um, and you know what? I'm I'm all I'm all for that. So I'm I'm also really interested in how um, how a s- selection of a, of a particular soundtrack could enhance your your workout. You know. Oh sure. And I mean, you know, film and television composers have to think about this all very primarily because it's often our job to add the element of what is an assumed interior. Mm-hmm. So music is often in our culture, and particularly in our media culture, the assumed interior emotional life, the, the assumed interior psychology. Mm-hmm. So that is ostensibly our access. And what's so interesting in the relationship of psychedelia and goth is at first I find it hilarious because they they are in our culture completely separate. We don't often see you know the rainbow gathering showing up at uh, you know summer darkness and Utrax. You know we don't have um, you know they don't tend to go to the same clubs. They don't. We think of one as being you know outdoor and wilderness. We think of the other as being urban and um, you know in the dark. We, one is daytime, one is nighttime, and yet isn't it fascinating that both of these things come in some ways to the same point, that they resonate the same nodes, which is the transformation of consciousness. Absolutely. So in your research, how do you look... I'm assuming that... I mean, we can talk about instrumentation, we can talk about melodies and harmonies and all sorts of musical elements that are shared among them, but what are the traces that you see that connect these two configured as very distinct musical subgenres that bring them together. What do you see as their connections in the sonic realm, or how would you map them sonically? Oh, <laughs> interesting question. I think, I think there, are, there are many different ways. So you were talking earlier about repetition. So that, that, that's a great one, and I think that's one that's, that's quite, quite well recognised already. So the way music can hypnotise us or entrance us um, and that is interesting in itself because I, so I used to play with this, this Persian music ensemble and that was, that was crazy for me because it was just a completely different sonic world to, to, to anything I'd ever experienced before. And you're Macomb. Oh, <laughs> I mean, the way that, 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 that the rhythms and the phrases are conceived, not in terms of, of, you know, beats per bar and, and, and this kind of thing, but, but, but words and sentences and phrases so you know you have you have pieces that are in 13 or 15 mm-hmm. and you know it's it's fine it's it's not a problem that it's that it's not not in four sort of thing you we can't divide it by four it, it, it doesn't matter and I at first when I was trying to to learn this repertoire oh my goodness how difficult was that and I found I found the way that the the that uh the, the way into that music was not to think about it mm-hmm just feel it. Just switch off that part of your mind that's trying to calculate, that's trying to count, that's, that's trying to understand. And 
I, I used to I, I used to let the other musicians trance me out basically and once that had happened you know I <laughs> granted I probably didn't know where I was in the cycle but <laughs> no one of the highlights of my life thus far was watching Badal Roy who I had the great honor and privilege of playing with um, Badal Roy for those of you who don't know at home is the tabla player uh, who uh, was on the Miles Davis on the Corner album and made all this great John McLaughlin records and currently tours with Ronette Coleman and is just a phenomenal musician. And I was doing a recording session with my band, Erroneous Funk, and our drummer, Brett Tassin, also very well known. Uh, he's the current tour drummer for um, uh, Brett Meckles' Poison. He's also uh, the drummer for Velvet Chain and a number of these bands. Watching Badal Roy teach Brett to try and play in Funky 17. <laughs> and watching the smoke come out of Brett's ears <laughs> as he tried to contemplate with drum kit how on earth you make Funky 17 happen. So we don't think... I mean, even in the West, we do have these rhythmic cycles. They're not constructed the same way. When you're thinking about mm -hmm. Persian music, when you're thinking about Indian music, when you're thinking about some of these other classical musics, these rhythmic cycles have personalities they have syntax they have um ornamentations that are associated with them they they have a life in and of themselves and the trance function is absolutely central mm. to them absolutely so it's an interesting point that you bring that in immediately talking about these musical elements that join the two because that's Obviously, like, one of the ways that I really see those two things as surprisingly similar. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, hypnosis, repetition or whatever, that, that's, that, that's one indicator, I'd say, of musical psychedelia. And even then, I mean, there are so many different ways as, as a mu musician that you can create that. And you can come at it from from different angles. So there, there's 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 diversity there. You know, you you, you could do a, you could do a whole PhD thesis, thesis just on that. I mean, then you start to bring in other areas. So like uh, one that I like to work with is like the fetishizing of timbre. Yes, this and timbre has come up so many times in this podcast <laughs> already. It's it we we all fetishize timbre. <laughs> um, we we're open about it. We don't mind. We're timbre people's anonymous. <laughs> Thank you. 
Timbre is timbre is huge. Timbre is impossible to define in any meaningful way um, because it is tone color. Great, we've already used a mixed metaphor. Well, it's it's a, it's a synesthetic <laughs> yes. metaphor, right? So that's that's another error. I mean, the the way we do talk about music, we we so ha- often have to rely upon you know approaches that I, I would say are, are, are synesthetic in nature. You know, mm-hmm. like talking about. You know, where, if if sounds are, are wooden or, right. or, or or this kind of thing, sharp, so, dry, wet. Well, yeah. So so you're taking a sense that you've you, you're talking about something that you perceive as 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 a, as a sonic phenomenon, and you're talking about it in in a tactile way. Yes. Or visual. I, absolutely right. right. But you're you're using synesthesia, and it's it's completely accepted. But if I talk about synesthesia in the concept of psychedelic drugs, oh, can't yes. do that. Mm. <laughs> You've got toxic psychosis again, you know? <laughs> it's so interesting when you bring these two sound worlds together, how many, how we multiply the dangers. Mm. Because it really feels like they're being multiplied. The, the ways in which this can be dismissed in our... In our very limited view of musical cultures, and particularly musical subcultures, the way we just, you know, sort of shorthand them, you know, gospel, you know, psychedelics, Mm. stoners, and, and these are all reasons not to take them seriously in terms of their fundamental cultural work. Absolutely. So what does bringing together these two things what what cultural work does that do? What do you uncover in that analysis? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I guess I guess going back to what I said earlier about about there being a fundamental need to address certain prejudices and certain preconceptions. Literally, if only all it does is open up dialogue. Mm. That's. That's enough. <laughs> you know, for now, I think I think we have... There's so much work to be done. But at the moment, nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to take you seriously. You talk about what you're researching. It all gets a bit awkward. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, we need that not to be the case, first right. and foremost. Um, and we have this mythology. For those of you at home who have the mythology that the university or the academic setting is a place in which we can freely explore ideas without the fear of being <laughs> repressed. Yes, we are all laughing really hard <laughs> right now because all of the prejudices and all of the repressions and all the web of ridiculousness that exists out there in culture is multiplied a hundredfold in our research. It's scary as well because there's such a drive um, as well in academia about your career, yes. you know? And how you're going to move on up through the ranks and, you know, become head and shoulders above everyone else and stand out in that job interview and, and, and all this kind of thing. And you, if, if you have an area of research that is, is by its very nature something that, that isolates people, I mean, that's not going to do your career any favours. Mm. You know, so, and it's... It's one of those in-club cultures as well. Yes. Right? Yes. So it's... (sighs) Academia is not what it purports to be. And that that troubles me. Mm. It's very troubling. And also, 
I think you've you've honed in on and I think it's really interesting you've honed in on two of of this of the musical expressions because I want to think of them not as subgenres or not as subcultures but I also want to think of them as modalities of expression mm. you've hit on two modalities of expression whose fundamental role is the troubling mm. of the dominant culture mm. and so when we even as ostensibly having the privilege of being in institutions of higher learning we learn very very quickly that to foreground those things, those expressions, those modalities of culture that trouble, we instantaneously become associated with that trouble. <laughs> you know, we're, we're suddenly the bad guy yeah. in that regard. Yeah. And, you know, goths are dismissed as not living in the real world for very different reasons than psychedelic, you know, or psychonauts, as we might want to call them, are accused of not living in the real world. Can you draw any parallels between these imagined worlds as well? Mythology, cosmology, you know, we're not just talking about um, music at this point. We're really yeah. talking about how do members of these communities in dialogue with one another, and I think you proved very, very well yesterday, and we're going to have wonderful musical examples in the show as well that that really demonstrate this correlation between these two very distinctly configured worlds, and yet both of them are surrounding this notion of personal transformation in the context of troubling the status quo. Mm. So there's very much a kind of... Um, antagonistic stance mm -hmm. encoded into them do you how do you how do you picture that or how do you account for that in your own sort of research cosmology well i think i think antagonism i mean that i wouldn't say that's an inaccurate description of the status quo at the moment but i'd like to think that it's not defiance for the sake of defiance but it's more 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 challenging than antagonism. Mm. So you were talking earlier about the real world, for example. Um, I, I mean, there's 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 a perception that like uh, you know subcultures behave uh, in the way they do in order to to be defiant against against the real world. But I think in 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 some way it's it's just posing a challenge. Like, what the fuck is the real world? You know, why do we have why, why, why do we have this need to compartmentalise and put mythology in this box and, you know, real-life serious stuff over here? Um, and what is this hierarchy of knowledge that we cultivate and reinforce and, and use in a, in, a, in a very circular argument to perpetuate just the way things are? Um, I think these are really, really interesting questions. I personally blame the Enlightenment. I'm looking at you, <laughs> 1450. <laughs> I think you screwed us up in the late 15th century and we have been trying to get back ever since. <laughs> so that's just my two cents. <laughs> now, I want to also talk about um, the, the implication of psychedelia in the transcendence of time. And then looking at sort of, you know, again, this very stereotypical notion of Gothic and this very stereotypical notion of psychedelic, which is fixed in time 
<laughs> to a very specific moment in at least Western cultural history. You know, for Gauss, the 80s, for the psychedelics, the 1970s. And yet, as you and I both know, one of the ways that these two things are joined is in the transcendence of time. Now, we are both musicians, so we understand that there are many, many flavors of time. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about time in this relationship, internal, external, cultural, historic, chronologic, and musical? And how do those relate to our sort of shallower notions of these two things being very, very fixed and, and, and let's say it, you know, dated for most people now? Absolutely. Well, I think time in itself is, is very, another very political issue, right? So, so the way that we compartment, again, compartmentalize days, you know, and, and, eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, you know, eight hours for leisure or, or, or whatever. So, so time in itself uh, is, is a very political thing and music allows us to experience time in very different ways. Um, and, you know, as you very rightly pointed out, there again is another link with psychedelia and, and, and this kind of thing. Um, and yes, again, so even within, from a methodological perspective... When people hear psychedelia, they immediately, immediately think of the 1960s, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's that is absolutely fascinating time, you know. We're let, not dissing them. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, let's have a look at that. That that that's really exciting. But I think, I think there is there is a fundamental problem with that, in that it dismisses the, I mean, the 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 the, 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 the huge history we have from cultures all over the world, using psychedelic substances since since antiquity like so we don't know how far back right um and so 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 that there's an issue there about bringing bringing those narratives into the dialogue um and not just looking at like like you said you know goth over here and they do things this way and and, and hippies over here and, and, and we do things this way i mean there's such a connection and and this this is this is going to sound like a cliche, so I do apologise. But but so I'm interested in 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 the the interconnectedness of all things because I think I think there's a way we don't really understand. I don't think the nature of knowledge, and I think there's something very interesting there. So like when you have a look at some of the the. the the literature around ayahuasca and things like this, and the way, the way people experience knowledge from plants. I mean, you say that in the West, and people people will raise the eyebrow. Mm-hmm. And if you talk about them instead of as plants, as teachers, as this plant teacher, yeah. as this plant teacher, as yeah. have you met this plant teacher? Of course. So that so this is another thing. So um, I. I went to a, a wonderful uh, conference on psychedelics in in London a couple of years ago, and there was some, I was speaking with some with some witches, and they're they're amazing. They were, they were they were telling me about the the relationship that you have to cultivate with all the different plants, and how you you have to get to know them. And I think that I think there's something very very wise in that. I mean, even like exploring your own consciousness and deciding, okay, I I would like to to experience a chemical. I mean treat it with respect, get to know it, see what it feels like, whether it it works with your body, with your psyche or not, because we are all different. We all have different bio, biochemistries and we need to we need to learn respect for this kind of thing and and 
And we need to embrace the fact that we can have respect for, for plants and we can think of them in the same way as we might another human. We can uh, open our minds to the fact that these things are spiritual. They have personalities. Yes, absolutely. Distinct personalities. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and, and this comes, I mean, I love the fact that you were having that conversation in Europe and one of the, the key things that I see, and now we're, we're sort of leaving the realm of the psychedelic and the Gothic and moving to the realm of heathenism and in uh, in Northern Europe, uh, you know, I think of generally sort of pagan and and, uh, and Wiccan practices as being sort of subgenres of heathenism. And the fact that the North European heathens are talking about the same concepts as the North American heathens, mm-hmm. because I follow a North American heathen religion, and in my religion, it's about relations, and people don't understand why those who don't follow my particular indigenous practice are not allowed into these ceremonies because they don't understand that they have to develop relations. Mm -hmm. It's not just, well, I'm showing up and I want to do this and I have the fundamental right to do whatever I want. I have the fundamental right to experience whatever I want. Mm -hmm. We go from a point of view of, I need to make relations with the fire. I need to make relations with the stones. I need to build relations with the plants. And so it's a very different relationship it's far from a consumer relationship no that's exactly so, so this is this is one of the reasons i have such a problem with rights because what you're saying there is i mean i i couldn't agree more strongly is you know you have to if you if you want to experience something you have to offer something you have to give something back it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all about balance but the way our culture i think is is oriented at the moment is you know it's it's we we're, we're very competitive. We love competition. We we you know it, it's competitive it's... yoga. <laughs> I'm just saying there's yoga competitions now. What the fuck are you serious? In America, there's yoga competitions. Oh. Yes, is your asana? Let me judge your asana. <laughs> oh my goodness me! I know. If, if we would if we didn't cry. If, if we didn't laugh, we'd cry. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Well, I've we... always thought that about uh, you know. Um, music music festival that I, I'm I'm thinking of of of, of classical music competitions oh, in been... the sense of festivals, not you know. Oh no, no, no whatever, the Van Cliburn and the rock, you know, the, the the big international, the Bartok Prize, the the mm-hmm. Van Cliburn piano competition. Absolutely, these these big competitions, and and I actually have to judge piano competitions, and I cannot tell you how many times I got such shit from the parents who thought mm-hmm. that because you know little Johnny played more notes faster than someone else (laughs) that they should have won when we turned around and gave the prize to the 15-year-old who got the tone color of Debussy perfect. But he made a couple of mistakes. So, okay, you're there playing more notes faster, right? So you're talking about quantity and you're talking about ways that we can measure something that are absolute and repeatable. Mm -hmm. Or his tone color. It's like, dude, he got Debussy right. (laughs) Do you understand how hard that is? It no. resonated with my soul, okay? <laughs> exactly. He got it right. I have spent my life trying to recreate that tone color on the piano. He got it right. I mean, I guess it's it's an area of knowledge, you know, it's it's very difficult. We don't even have the words for it at the moment. But I think rather than than being suspicious about that and 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 and, and avoiding it, I mean, we should we should we should embrace the unknown more. Um, because I mean that has that has implications for how we treat others in society as well. This kind of thing, you know. Um, Absolutely, and the challenge right now is is not access to knowledge; it's an understanding of how 
to how to negotiate difference. Mm-hmm. We're terrified of it. Yeah. So much so that children are drowning in overloaded boats because we're afraid of them. Mm. And so this work that you're talking about is not just about, you know, musicians sitting in an ivory tower someplace. You know, we're really trying to heal the world <laughs> by studying these topics mm. and, and by opening up this dialogue. And you might not think that we would get to that place from a conversation about goth and psychedelia. <laughs> and yet underneath it is very much a more human story about what is the role of the individual journey and the ability to own one's own consciousness in all of its forms, the ability to truly know oneself, not just as, you know, a a behind-the-counter worker at McDonald's, but as a complete cosmic being Mm. who goes far beyond the physical realm. And music, of course, is always already pointing (laughs) us to that realm. And, you know, you add the psychedelic element, and again, people get very nervous. Mm. But I think that also adds a layer. I mean, let's face it, they took the psychedelics of the 60s and the 70s, took that practice often from the indigenous peoples Mm -hmm. who had their own musics Mm -hmm. associated with Mm -hmm. these things. Mm -hmm. And so... It, for me, when I'm in ceremony, I am not consuming substances to get to these places. I am using the drums and the songs. Of course. So I see no fundamental difference between a substance journey and a music journey. They are in an, they are indistinguishable even when you're in the midst of them. Absolutely. So how do you see your research moving forward? both in terms of how music has the potential, just like all of these plants that we are Mm -hmm. restricting, and and that it has the potential to function as much more of a force of healing, Mm -hmm. much more, both for individuals and for us as a culture, obviously, that it it needs to show us things collectively and individually. How do you see your, your research moving forward what is sort of pulling you onward and what big questions are, is this raising in you? Um, well, I guess after opening the dialogue, I think there's, there's perhaps potential there to look at whether it's possible to form types of, I mean, we, we already accept that music can be very beneficial in certain therapeutic contexts, right? Um, so if we understand, and, and the same is true for a whole range of psychedelic compounds, uh, if we can understand musical psychedelia better, can we develop forms of psychedelic music therapy so that we can heal people through music? So I met this absolutely wonderful uh, shaman um, ag- again at this psychedelic conference in, in London last year, and he was telling me um, how he learned, he was telling me this, his, this wonderful personal story, his, his journey and, of discovery and, and how he, he, he learns that you don't heal, I mean, because there's such a big thing at the moment for ayahuasca tourism, mm-hmm. which I think is, is very frightening. Um, and dangerous. And dangerous, and that's, that's another issue. But he was telling me, you know, you don't heal people through drugs. The plants give you the music and you heal people through music. It's the songs. The songs do the work. It is. It it's is. all in the music. 
Very so, much so. And of course, you know, in that again highlights this very Western notion of people who literally fly in with no relation to the jungle, to the plants, to the, the stones, the earth, the trees, any of the wildlife. They, they believe that because they've paid $10,000 or whatever the going rate is for, you know, your ayahuasca to like come and dose you. And they think that they have access, therefore, to an, a more authentic experience than we associate with our life in the West. So in essence, it's, it's a tourism not of geography, but a, a, an attempt to commodify an entire mm-hmm. way of life that we don't feel we need to build a relationship to. And as we all know, people can get really screwed up. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that we... So we, in, you know, in the West, we have this tendency to separate things immediately from their context repress their context, particularly if it's not white, male, heteronormative, and, you know, European, uh, Northern European specifically, you know, well, I'm just saying, you know, 100 years ago, 20 years ago, the Spanish and the Italians weren't even white. So I'm just saying, like, we have this very sort of Northern European view of being able to go out and consume, Mm -hmm. which I think kind of relates back to the initial discussion of psychedelian goth in the way that people assume one can put on the clothes or smoke the weed or go to the club and you know they they can hit hot topic and get a nice outfit and go be a goth for an evening and consume oh well I've consumed that now let me go on to the next thing yeah so you can buy the clothes and you can you can become goth right and somehow that's your magical yeah that's that's your magic ticket well if we can if we can uh, open people's minds up to the fact that you know buying things doesn't solve everything mm. that that would be a win just that you know buying buy things <laughs> doesn't mean you're a good person <laughs> forget all the big questions exactly <laughs> just don't try to solve your problems with money exactly <laughs> and if you can buy it in at least in my culture if you can buy it it's not really worth having And there you have it, folks, that wonderful interview with Claire Rebecca Bannister that we did back at the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts in Orlando in March. And it was delightful to see it range from the war on consciousness and preconceived notions about all sorts of topics in the West to a real appeal for open dialogue about the role of consciousness and music in consciousness more specifically. Um, We really couldn't have ended it on a better note. So we're going to end this week with a track from a Los Angeles band that I mentioned earlier, Red Temple Spirits. And this particular track, I could not have chosen a better track to end this discussion and certainly to sum up many of the topics that we talked about 
all the way back in haunted field recordings and spectral sound art and the ways in which sound in and of itself can be uncanny. I also think that here the blend of psychedelic elements and gothic elements is so artfully done that it really sums up the conversation better than either of us ever could. So thank you for listening this week. We will see you next week. And in the meantime, we'll let Red Temple Spirits take us out. Catch you next time. Little by little